Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, the 29th of July. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by the new host of a brand new ABC quiz show, Question Everything, Jan Fran. Hey, Jan. Hello, mate. Yeah, it was announced yesterday. Brief, as I'm sad to say that in the middle of August, um, I'll be taking some time off from the podcast to host a new show on the ABC called Question Everything. Yeah, so you're co-hosting with Will Anderson. So to me, it looks like your journey from um, journalist to journalist slash comedian is almost there. (laughs) Yeah, the problem is you have to be really funny to be a comedian. I don't know if I'm quite there. I'm going to leave the the comedy to Will Anderson and the panellists that will join us every week. They're the ones bringing the lols. I'm there, you know, equipped with the facts as much as possible. So this is a show about sifting through misinformation, the fake news of the week. It's a quiz show. It's a comedy show. And hopefully the audience kind of takes something away from that and learns a little bit about misinformation and how to be more media literate because God knows we just need that in this day and age. Yep, it is a swamp of information these days. Um, We try and cut through it here on the briefing. Um, In our briefing topic today, we're going to find out what's going on with the friendly Geordie's defamation case. The lawyers basically say that the two videos betrayed him as a corrupt con man. The videos were vile and racist and that they brought him into public disrespute, odium, ridicule and contempt. Yeah, we'll explain why Friendly Geordies and his producer are both facing court. We'll discuss whether the two cases combined raise serious concerns about freedom of speech. So stick around for that one. It came from a briefing listener, that topic. First, here are today's big headlines. Well, local leaders in Western Sydney say the extended lockdown and tougher restrictions on their suburbs will devastate their communities. This is equivalent of Armageddon for a lot of our residents. Essentially, it's going to cripple them. So that's the Mayor of the Cumberland Local Government Area, Steve Christus, speaking on Nine News. Cumberland's now one of eight Sydney local government areas, LGAs, where residents can only leave their area for prescribed essential work. And these LGAs account for about two million people. Yeah, the thing is, though, that they account for almost 70% of the total cases recorded so far in the Sydney outbreak. Um, The tightening on these areas has come with news that the Greater Sydney lockdown is going to go on for another four more weeks. Please know that I'm as upset and as frustrated as all of you that we weren't able to get the case numbers we would like to, you know, at this point in time. And those case numbers got to 177 yesterday. Yeah, that's right. I mean, not only have we not got those case numbers to where we need them to be, 177 is actually a record high. And I think what's interesting is we're seeing a change in the rhetoric from the New South Wales Premier. It's no longer just about getting those numbers down or about getting the numbers down that are infectious in the community, but it's about getting vaccinated. Gladys Berejiklian and going really hard on the idea that 75 to 80% of New South Wales' population has to be fully vaccinated if we're really going to stop our states from going into lockdown. And they've been working hard to make AstraZeneca more easily available to young people as well. And Berejiklian said yesterday that the numbers of, of young people doing that are going through the roof. Yeah, that's definitely encouraging. Like I said, she's the one who's been saying this. We need 75 to 80% of our population vaccinated before we allow the virus to circulate in the community. That means 5 million people in the state of New South Wales will need to have received both jabs. Where we're at right now, only 1.1 million people have, so we're still a way off. 
And the federal government's put COVID emergency payments back up to the old JobKeeper level and made support available to more people. The way we are structuring these supports to people are to ensure that those businesses and those individuals can get through as whole as possible through these lockdowns. That was the PM, Scott Morrison, speaking there. Now, these payments go to people who've lost work because of Sydney's lockdown. They will now receive up to $750 per week. Um, This is up from $600. Yeah, so that's back up to the JobKeeper level. They're also giving $200 a week uh, for people who are already on Centrelink who've lost more than eight hours of part-time work a week as well. It's interesting that $750 does match the JobKeeper rate, but the PM is adamant this is not JobKeeper and that they won't be bringing JobKeeper back. This is um, what he says is a more tailored and more agile payment. Um, Of course, not all of the states around the country are in lockdown at the moment, only New South Wales. Um, So this is a specific approach for that state. Yeah, I think what that means is it's it's when you're in lockdown, you access this payment, um, but it is a national scheme that would be available to other states if they were to go into an extended lockdown. Northern Territory children mistreated in facilities such as the infamous Dondale Detention Centre have won a $35 million payout from the Northern Territory government. Yeah, this deal between the Territory and the law firm Morris Blackburn means that the money is going to be shared among young people who were mistreated between 2006 and 2017. Now, that is estimated to be around 1,200 people. It'd be about $30,000 if that money was split equally. The settlement came after two former inmates launched a class action in 2016 claiming they were assaulted, abused and falsely imprisoned whilst in the Northern Territory Youth Detention Facilities. And this all came about after that Four Corners, uh, which triggered a royal commission into the protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory. I remember that um, that investigation pretty well in, in 2016. They showed harrowing footage of mm. tear gas being deployed at the Don Dale Detention Centre. There were inmates that were kept in solitary confinement, um, allegations of torture against the NT government. Now, this payment also coincides with a campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility as well to 14. So right now you can be as young as 10 and get sent to a detention centre and advocates argue that that's much more likely to impact Indigenous children who are vastly overrepresented in the juvenile justice system. So a few campaigns running concurrently there. And the Australian Olympic teams had its best day since Athens in 2004, winning three gold yesterday, including another one to Ariane Titmus, who beat American Katie Ledecky again to tank gold in the 200 metres freestyle. The legend is growing before our eyes. She does it again. An Olympic record, a golden double. Ariane Titmus, the two and four. That really was a great moment, wasn't it? That audio that you heard there comes courtesy of the Seven Network. Obviously, they have the Olympic rights there. The men's and women's coxless four rowing teams also both took first place in their races as well. And so those three goals were followed up by bronze in the men's and women's quad skull rowing events, uh, bronze medals in the 200 metres freestyle relay and Rowan Dennis in the men's time trial cycling event. And I must say, I'm not the biggest fan of the Olympics. I don't watch it religiously. It's been quite nice having it on in lockdown, if I'm being honest. (laughs) 
Weren't you saying it shouldn't go ahead, Jan, because of the COVID cases? Well, I mean, dare I say, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news here, Tom, but the COVID cases don't look great in Tokyo, now that you're asking. It's another record-breaking day of infections today in the city. There's been 174 COVID cases linked to the Olympics since July 1st. Um, They're experiencing a similar wave to what they saw in May of this year. So, you know, I've just I've just got my fingers and toes crossed that people can get in, get out, and there's not a massive outbreak left for the Japanese people. It's going to be another huge day in the pool today. Um, we've got five more medal chances with the men's 800 free, uh, the men's 200 breaststroke, women's 200 butterfly, women's 4x200 freestyle relay, and Kyle Chalmers will be in the much-anticipated men's 100-metre freestyle final. So another massive day at the Olympics. Jam, we'll catch you later. Katrina's is jumping in as we talk about friendly Geordies. Now to our briefing on the friendly Geordies defamation case. This is an interesting one, isn't it, Katrina Blouse? Yes, it is. And we have a really great set of questions on this from a briefing listener called Lane here in Brisbane. Hey, guys. Uh, my name's Lane. Um, I've got a topic I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on, kind of twofold. Uh, initially, the, the defamation lawsuit between YouTube journalist and comedian uh, Jordan Shanks, friendly Geordie, uh, and the New South Wales deputy premier, John Barilara. And the arrest of his YouTube producer, Christo Lanka, uh, who was arrested by the fixated persons unit on the grounds of stalking John Barilara. Um, so just just curious around why in particular the fixated persons investigation unit was used to carry out the arrest. What, what does this mean for free speech in Australia if a politician in power and if the public eye can actually attempt to shut down a YouTube journalist? Can you hear your thoughts? Yeah, very interesting one there. A very complex set of questions from Lane about the friendly Geordie Barilara defamation story and also those stalking and intimidation charges on the producer and all wrapping into that broader question about free speech and I guess criticism that's potentially in the public interest. So if you haven't been following this story, um, there's a lot of detail. We'll give you some basic facts before we uh, answer those deeper questions. So let's break it down. Friendly Geordies is a YouTube star. His real name is Jordan Shanks. He's a 31-year-old guy from Sydney. He actually started that YouTube channel around eight years ago and it's built up now to the stage where he's got about half a million subscribers. He's racked up 135 million views. So I guess you could call him part comedian, part political commentator. He's pretty open about his alignment with the Labor Party. And Tom, he's also giving <laughs> you a bit of shtick in his videos. So sexual assault and violence in music festivals is getting pretty out of hand. Why aren't police allowing us to take heavy drugs in music festivals? Yep, so that's him sort of um, tanking me off quite well um, a few years ago. <laughs> I'm sure that's how he built lots of his following. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, But he's actually gone a whole lot harder on a New South Wales politician called John Barillaro. Now, he is the Nationals leader in New South Wales and Barillaro is also the Deputy Premier. So the reason this has become big news is because of the series of videos Friendly Geordie's filmed and published where he attacked John Barillaro over corruption allegations. One of the videos he actually filmed inside John Barillaro's Airbnb house in Albury. Giovanni Dominique Barillaro. Now you might be thinking, oh no, he's in a bath naked. Can't you make something that isn't crude so I can show my mum? So because of that video and another one posted a month later, John Barillaro launched a defamation proceeding in May of this year. 
Now, there is another player in this story, and that is the Friendly Geordie's producer, Christo Lanker. He was arrested in June by a specialist police unit known as the Fixated Persons Unit, and he was charged with two counts of stalking Barillaro. No, I'm allowed to film it. No, you're not. Could, you're under arrest. You I'm allowed this? to film it. Could you film this, Mum? You can film it. That's okay. okay. But you're not allowed to, okay? Yeah. I'm not allowed to film it. No, no Mum, you can take my phone. No, no, you can take my phone. No, take my phone. Take my phone. Don't you so since all this has happened, there's been a massive wave of public support for Friendly Geordies. They have a donation campaign. They've raised... $1 million for the lawsuit. And one of the people who donated was Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister. So to answer Lane's questions, let's get right into this story. Michael McGowan is a journo from The Guardian who's been following the case. Michael, thanks for joining us. What exactly is John Barillaro suing Friendly Geordies for? So Friendly Geordies, this YouTube comedian, over time has become a sort of overtly political vlogger, I guess, for want of a better word, is very critical of the mainstream media and sort of vaguely left-leaning politically. Um, so he's deeply critical and, and often savagely critical of the New South Wales Liberal National Government, and in particular, John Barillaro. So the case basically relates to two videos that he filmed in September and October last year. In one, Jordan Shanks from the Geordies filmed himself inside Barillaro's Albury Airbnb property, which he'd rented out. Um, and in the video, he called Barillaro a series of mean names. Uh, he often makes references to Barillaro's Italian heritage and, and for example, has, has betrayed him as the Super Mario Nintendo character. So then in May, Barillaro launched defamation action in relation to that video and another one. And in a statement of claim, the lawyers basically say that the two videos betrayed him as a, as a corrupt con man, the videos were violent racist, and that they brought him into public disrespute odium, ridicule and contempt. They also claim that Shanks defamed Barillaro by implying that he had committed perjury nine times during a New South Wales parliamentary committee hearing and that he should be sent to jail. Shanks has played truth to some of those claims, which essentially means that he has to prove that what he said about the Deputy Premier would have been seen as true by an ordinary, reasonable person. And to do that, he's introduced a number of things in his defence, including... Barillaro's boast about the expenditure of a, a regional arts grant, which was overwhelmingly spent in coalition seats. And back in uh, in May last year, Barillaro was quoted as saying, you can call me Pork Barillaro, um, this is a reference to, to pork barrelling. So, Michael, the producer of uh, this YouTube channel was also arrested in fairly dramatic style. Can you just lay out for us, what were those charges? Why was he arrested? Basically, a month after the defamation case was launched, the, the New South Wales police then arrested Shanks' producer, who's a 21-year-old man, Christo Lanka, and charged him with uh, stalking or allegedly stalking and intimidating Barillaro after the deputy premier made a complaint to the police. So the charges basically relate to two incidents. The first happened at an event at Macquarie Uni in Sydney where Barillaro was speaking at an event. Now, during the talk, Jordan Shanks came on stage dressed as the uh, Nintendo character Luigi with Lanka, who was dressed as his lawyer. And police basically say they were shouting, why are you suing us? Why are you suing us? And then police say that Shanks left the stage, but Lanka continued to, and I'm quoting, tussle with people to get close to Barillaro. Then the second incident happened when Barillaro was returning to his car after the funeral of the rugby league immortal Bob Fulton, 
Lanka allegedly approached him and began asking Deputy Premier, why are you suing my boss? Now, according to police, Barilara got into his car. Uh, Lanka allegedly continued to film and ask questions before the Deputy Premier drove away. On that, the police version is actually really strongly contested by Lanka's lawyers who, who say that their version doesn't accord with the facts. They say the vision showed Lanka wasn't following Barilara for as long as the police said and did not call him corrupt, as the police said. So there's, there's definitely some, some contest there. But the use of the fixated persons unit in this arrest has also been quite heavily criticised. Okay, Michael, we'll come back to you in a second, but we're going to go now to Dr. Kieran Hardy, who is a counter-terrorism law and policy expert at the Griffith University Criminology Institute. And we'd love to uh, get straight to Lane's question around why this fixated persons unit was used to carry out the arrests. From the statement provided by New South Wales Police around the fixated persons unit, The grounds are either that somebody has an obsessive preoccupation with a public official or that they have some extremist ideology. So in order for the fixated person's unit to look at someone, the person doesn't need to have an extremist cause or ideology, something that we'd associate with terrorism. So it may well technically fall under the grounds. But again, uh, it's this question of resources and using against, you know, even if it, it does come out that, you know, they are guilty of stalking or something else. The question is still, was this the best use of the unit that was set up in response to the Sydney siege? So what's your view? Do you think they've misused this unit? I think on face value from the information that we have, it does seem an inappropriate use of resources to use something that was set up in response to serious kind of terrorist events. And, and so when you think about the Sydney siege, this was someone who wasn't directly connected with ISIS, um, but had been kind of a you know a public nuisance. He had a history of behaviour, um, such as sending letters to um, the families of, of ADF members. So it's a suspect that doesn't pass some kind of standard for the counterterrorism unit to get involved. Essentially, that's the sort of space it's operating. Yeah, so there's a range of terrorism offences that could lead to somebody being investigated for a terrorism offence, like um, whether if you're a member of a terrorist organisation, you could be preparing or planning a terrorist act. I don't think there's any kind of you know suggestion on the information available that that was the case here. So it kind of fits into this pattern for me of special counterterrorism powers being used for broader purposes, which is concerning. That's one aspect of it. And then I think the other big aspect, as we said before, is that freedom of speech angle and governments not kind of being willing to accept any kind of criticism and clamping down on that. How much difference did it would it make getting this fixated persons unit involved? Because if they didn't do that and they just arrested him for allegedly stalking the deputy premier, then there wouldn't be all this controversy. So did it did it actually make that much difference having this fixated persons unit involved compared to just, say, a normal policing unit? I think that's a really good question because there may well be cases where that kind of specialised approach, say detectives who are trained in these matters com- are working alongside, closely alongside mental health professionals. In a case like, I mean, if you remember, say, the murder of Joe Cox in the United Kingdom, there are cases where that kind of an approach, I think, would be really useful early on. So there will be cases where a specific approach is useful. This doesn't seem to me to be one of those Mm. cases at all. So that's Dr. Kieran Hardy. He is a counter-terrorism law expert at Griffith Uni. And we'll come back to Michael McGowan now, who's a journo at The Guardian, who's been covering this case. Wrapping in both cases into this whole story, Michael, what do you think are the broader questions about the freedom of speech and silencing dissent? We know from a swathe of other cases that 
Australian defamation law is is stacked well in favour of the plaintiff. And, you know, every day journalists in this country self-censor because of the risk of being sued. To be honest, I think increasingly politicians are aware of that and are using those laws, in effect, to silence people. So Shanks himself, we obviously have to see how this case unfolds. But I think I would say the issue here is is maybe more structural than it is to his specific case. And, and hopefully it reignites that debate about our defamation laws. Obviously, I'm slightly biased as a, as a journalist on that issue, though. Mm. Doesn't there need to be some accountability for Jordan Shanks? You know, he's using racial slurs. Like, he really goes mm. far beyond journalism. Yeah. And, it, and it is a tricky mix of satire, elements of journalism, and the use of social media. But certainly, he has really pushed the envelope. That's certainly true. And, and I would say as well, what's interesting about this is that even if we had had a public interest defence introduced by now, I don't think that Shanks would be able to use it purely because there was never any attempt to contact uh, Barilara. This is not a, this is not mm. an example of sort of, you know, fair and impartial journalism. Yeah, we're not it's defending not Kate, Kate McClymont here, are we? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. You're right. People in any society have a right to defend themselves from vicious attacks or, or, or smears. I think personally right now we have the balance a little bit wrong. The Shanks case is, is interesting because your opinion on, on him and what he said seems to vary wildly depending on what you think of him. You know, like yes. just being at uh, some of the sort of hearing dates, mostly in relation to Lanka, you know, he, he, his fan base is quite atypical, you know. It's sort mm-hmm. of like your white middle-class undergraduate kind of guy. He has like a big solid fan base and they really love him. And I... <laughs> I'm sure, you know, his listeners are are quite, you know, concerned by what's happened. All right, so that was Michael McGowan trying to sum up what has become a very complex story, Katrina. It sounds like Friendly Geordies is going to struggle to win that defamation case, Mm. but he's raised so much money that maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah, and think of the incredible publicity he's got for himself and the number of views that he's generated since then. I think he probably wants to drag this out as long as possible, keeping it in the public eye. Tomorrow on The Briefing, your questions on the vaccine, we're putting them to Nick Coatsworth. Listener.